Hello again, podcast listeners. Once again, I am Dr. James Cole, and I'm here today to present to you my newest topic of healthcare in America, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Today's topic is called, Who's in Charge and Who Can You Trust? Unfortunately, it's unclear to me who's actually in charge of a patient's overall plan of care these days, and that certainly falls into the bad category of our healthcare system. And unfortunately, I'll discuss insurance companies, managed care plans, healthcare organizations, and institutions, as they have, by and large, become the ones who dictate how groups of patients receive care and by whom these days. So, who's in charge? Perhaps it's no longer really a who but more of an entity, an organization, if you will. And thus, perhaps the question we should be asking is, what entity is in charge of our overall healthcare plan? And if it has become an entity that is now deciding who takes care of you, takes care of me, and who takes care of us, then a perfectly reasonable follow-on question must include, who can we trust? I guess that healthcare has kind of become something akin to any one of the major utility companies. Just hear me out. Let's say that you receive a letter from a utility company informing you of some sort of service issue, a problem, or a situation that might alter your life for a while. Perhaps your power will be out for a day or two to facilitate some city construction or something. It's bad news for sure, but that letter isn't signed by any one person, but instead it's signed by the electric company. You're a little irritated. You want to call somebody, and you want to ask a few heated questions, but there's no one person to call. You have nobody to discuss your frustrations with, and you have nobody to blame. You realize that the ones causing you angst is actually a body of nameless, faceless people who have taken control over that small aspect of your life that, in this example, regulates your power. But when a nameless, faceless entity seems to take over your health care, that, my friends, is a situation that can be downright ugly. So what am I talking about? Well. As I've already mentioned in a prior podcast, there most certainly was a time not long ago when a person's primary care physician, the doctor who had a relationship with the patient for years, who knew that patient better than any other physician, and in whom uh, that patient had placed trust in for years, well, that's the one who historically was in charge of a patient's overall health care. Whether it be routine, periodic health exams or immunizations, outpatient management of an acute illness or injury, coordination of care while hospitalized for a serious health issue, or years' worth of long-term follow-up and surveillance following a potentially life-threatening diagnosis such as cancer, a patient's primary care physician was always the one who was in charge. But times have changed, and whereas there are still some primary care physicians out there who do their very best to try to maintain whatever control they can and attempt to stay in charge of their patient's care plan, the whole healthcare system has been so significantly restructured that in many ways, it's eliminated any one person being in charge of anything. Patients once trusted their primary care physicians not only to take care of them, but trusted they would be referred only to the best, most appropriate specialists if necessary. However, in this changing healthcare system, how does anyone know which healthcare providers and which healthcare facilities can be trusted? But before I continue, I promise to never forget that despite these negatives that I'm bringing to the forefront, that there is a lot of good to say about U.S. healthcare. And whereas we can choose to focus on the bad and the ugly, I owe it to everyone out there to always devote at least some time to something I can really boast about. And today I'm going to give my kudos to robotic surgery. Yes, minimally invasive robotic-assisted laparoscopic surgery. 
This has truly changed the way we do things. Now, when the robot first came out, there were a lot of naysayers, myself included. Many of us couldn't for the life of us understand how a robot could make surgery any better. But then I started observing others do it. I watched how precisely they could control their instruments and how visualization was so far superior than even the best laparoscopic cameras I've ever used. I became amazed at how much could be accomplished through such small holes and how little blood loss there was. So I became a robotic surgeon. I completed all the additional training required and bit by bit, I added robotic da Vinci surgery to my repertoire. And in time, all of my partners became robotic surgeons and many of the gynecologists, urologists, and thoracic surgeons at my hospital also became robotic surgeons. Now, some may claim that robotic surgery is a gimmick and perhaps just a more expensive version of laparoscopic surgery. But when you are the one performing the actual surgery, and when you are the one taking a look at the outcomes data, you become absolutely convinced that robotic surgery is far superior to straight stick laparoscopic or open surgery. For starters, robotic surgeons can literally do everything with robotic instruments that they can do with their own two hands, but it's all done through tiny holes. Unlike with laparoscopic instruments where a surgeon can only push, pull, open, close, and turn an instrument, the degrees of movement and control you get using the robotic instruments is so far superior that you wonder how you ever did things previously. Visualization on the robot is amazing, in part because everything is three-dimensional. The scope used in robotic surgery has two objectives, one for each eye, and the viewer sees everything that he's doing inside the body. It makes it feel as if you're a small person who is somehow able to crawl inside that abdomen and operate. Because the surgeon gains so much more precision and control and has such better visualization on the robot, one can be a lot more precise with surgical resection margins, an especially important consideration when dealing with cancer. And blood loss for major operations such as colon resection drops to numbers measured in teaspoons. I should mention that robotic surgery is not the answer to all surgery, however, as trauma surgery, for example, will always remain the domain of the large incision open operation. But like laparoscopic surgery, robotic surgery is all performed through small holes rather than a large incision, and thus both are a lot less painful when compared to major open surgery. Patients who once needed to stay in the hospital for several days following traditional surgery now go home the same day with minimal pain. Patients are also less likely to develop a hernia at the incision site when performed minimally invasively rather than open. And when robotic surgery is performed to repair certain types of especially large abdominal hernias, the outcomes are much more successful. I guess that it may seem like I'm trying to sell something, but I'm not, because compared to all of my partners, I probably do less robotic surgery than the others, in part because, in my opinion, there are still some surgeries that are faster and better when done through regular incisions the old-fashioned way. But I, too, am a disciple of the robot. There are definitively certain types of surgeries that I will not perform any other way than on the robot. If I was a female in need of a hysterectomy, I would have it done by a robotic gynecologist. If I was told that I needed to have my prostate removed, I would definitely have it done by a robotic urologist. And I would also seek out a robotic general surgeon if I ever needed an elective colon resection. The bottom line is that robotics have definitely improved how we do certain types of surgery and is truly something we should all place in the good column when talking about American healthcare. Okay, so let's get back on the topic of who's in charge and who can you trust. 
Now, I know that there are a lot of people out there who are truly fed up with healthcare in America, and this particular topic strikes a particularly raw nerve in many. I've heard countless complaints from friends and family who feel that their visit to their doctor was an expensive waste of time, that the referral to one or more specialists was perhaps unnecessary, and that expensive CTs, MRIs, blood tests were ordered, but the doctors didn't seem to care much about the results. What I also hear is that despite all of the tests and referrals to various specialists, nobody seems to be in charge of the overall plan and nobody seems to be interested in putting it all together, all the different pieces of the puzzle, to come up with a comprehensive care plan. Whereas some might believe that this is all hyperbole, I believe that these stories are true because I often find myself as being the one who explains the findings of another consultant's evaluation to a patient I'm seeing for an entirely unrelated condition. It is true that things have changed. The primary care physician often does not manage and does not coordinate a patient's overall care. And there are several reasons why this change took place. Who or what is to blame for this unpleasantry? Well, patients share a portion of the blame. Primary care docs share a portion of the blame. Specialists own part of that blame. Insurance companies are partly to blame. And healthcare systems bear the remainder of the blame. So that's a lot of blame to go around, and, in, and it really does deserve a much deeper dive. So let me try to dissect this all apart into its separate components and talk it all through. Patients have slowly taken coordination of care and overall control out of the hands of their primary care physician. Yes, patients share a portion of the blame. In fact, it's the patients themselves who may have started it all by wanting to take control of their own bodies to manage their own health by referring themselves to specialists if they desired without ever even asking the opinion of their PCP and going to Google to acquire a surrogate medical degree over just a few hours time. I don't blame patients for wanting to be more autonomous, for empowering themselves to make the choices which they choose to make. It's certainly true that there have been a lot of studies published over the years which bring additional information to the forefront, perhaps giving recommendations contrary to what a patient's primary care physician might endorse. Maybe a patient agrees with these studies, but disagrees with the doctor. Then what? I don't blame people for surfing the internet. We all do it. When we have a pain or a problem, or when we've received a diagnosis or a lab test result, we do a Google or a Bing search to see what it all means. Of course, WebMD and the other medical sites out there are not substitutes for face-to-face -face meetings with a board-certified physician, but it is a lot quicker, cheaper, and easier. I've had patients come to see me with a stack of papers printed from their last internet search, or with a several-page list of questions generated from their computer consult. Most of the time, those with a big stack of paper or a long list have preconceived notions and for the most part have already decided, you know, what they want to do. Their papers and their questions are actually their litmus test to see if I agree what they've already decided. Almost as if I'm being tested by them to see if I know my subject. Well, I do know my subject and I've always had more knowledge and more information in my head than they could have at their fingertips. But it can be a bit irritating to be tested by a novice. And when these patients come to me like this, I do find it somewhat amusing, but not every doctor does. If I was a primary care physician and my patients came to me day after day, challenging me over and over as if I was on trial, I would quickly lose interest in them. As a surgeon, I do a fair amount of hernia surgery, a significant portion of which requires the use of mesh. The use of mesh became the standard of care for many hernia operations at least 20 years ago, and the vast majority of hernia surgeons out there repair most hernias using some sort of mesh. 
But the one conversation that I have over and over and over with patients is the one defending my use of mesh. Thanks to an incredibly successful number of personal injury lawyers, no hernia patient who has access to a television or a computer comes to me without expressing strong opinions on the evils of mesh. Of course, I anticipated it all. I sigh under my breath and I go into my talk, which I have given hundreds of times, attempting to convince my patients that they should reconsider their position. I often use their heart stents, their artificial knees or hips, their pacemakers, or their orthopedic plates and screws as examples of man-made artificial products they've already allowed someone else to implant into their body. I explain to them how, like all these other stents and implants, that over 99% of the time, these hernia mesh products will make their life so much better, but like anything else, sometimes they fail or cause trouble. Every single type of product implanted into a human body has had to be removed from someone at some time. Nothing is fail-safe or foolproof, but we trust the scientific studies, we trust our knowledge, and we trust our experience to make the best, safest recommendations to our patients. In the case of hernia repair, I always tell them that I'll fix their hernia without mesh if that's what they really want, but that's no longer considered the standard of care. The recurrence risk is much higher and fixing a recurrent hernia is fraught with much more complication than a first-time hernia repair done well. In the end, almost everyone opts for the mesh, but the conversation is painful and exhausting at times, and nobody gets compensated for spending additional unnecessary time with a patient. So I can imagine that if I was a primary care doctor and my first patient came to me with a relatively minor sore throat, which I thought was viral, and that antibiotics weren't necessary, yet my patient argued that his friends all told him that he needed a Z-Pack and I had to spend lots of extra time convincing him to the contrary. If that was the case, it might irritate me a tiny bit. Now, if my second patient came in with a wrenched back and following a physical exam, I was convinced that it was probably a self-limiting musculoskeletal strain Yet my patient argued that the internet said that an MRI was the only way anyone could accurately know the correct diagnosis, I might be a bit more irritated. And if my third patient came to me with heartburn after a few gluttonous weeks of excessive eating, drinking, and smoking, and he gave me a hard time for not referring him to a gastroenterologist despite my prescription for an antacid-reducing agent, I might start to get really annoyed. And if by the end of the day, a significant number of my patients repeatedly argued with me, then I might not have any great yearning to want to go out of my way to coordinate their future care. If a patient refers himself to a specialist without his PCP's knowledge, that PCP might not have any interest in chasing down the results of that referral or consultation. If a patient chooses to see a cardiologist to manage his blood pressure and elevated cholesterol or an endocrinologist to manage his diabetes or a dermatologist every time he sees a new mole or a spot on his skin, then what is the role of that primary care provider? Most PCPs can manage anyone's blood pressure, cholesterol, diabetes, and evaluate skin lesions, but if the patient chooses someone else to do those jobs, then the patient has usurped the position of that PCP. I've been told by many patients that they only use their PCP to refill their prescriptions. Many doctors find this insulting and very irritating, and often it leads to PCPs finally giving up even trying or wanting to coordinate their patient's care. So, over time, primary care physicians as a group have slowly relinquished coordination and control over their panel of patients. And a lot of this is for the reasons I just talked about. If over and over patients stopped using their PCP skills to manage various maladies that specialists certainly could manage, 
that eventually the primary care doctor's skills and experience fades, creating a position where it becomes necessary to refer most patients to a specialist. I remember my dad, who practiced internal medicine for many decades, telling me how much he enjoyed doing kidney and liver biopsies, bone marrow aspirations, spinal taps, and performing flexible sigmoidoscopies. He used to be the doctor who worked up and diagnosed his patients with various types of liver disease, kidney disease, leukemia, meningitis, and colon cancer, and he was a primary care physician. But as he got older, patients no longer wanted an internist to work up those problems I listed. So he began referring his liver patients to a hepatologist, his kidney patients to a nephrologist, his possible leukemia patients to a hematologist, and his colon cancer screening patients to a gastroenterologist. In doing so, his knowledge, experience, and comfort level in all of those areas faded, and eventually, most of what my dad did in his final years of practice was nowhere near as robust and complex as compared to his younger years. So if my dad relinquished all of those areas of medicine, even though he was once a near expert in what he did manage, you can imagine that today's primary care physicians are handing over responsibility with even greater frequency. Younger physicians may only have their medical school education and their three or four years of residency experience and experience far less comprehensive compared to two decades past to guide them in any of the out-of-the-box or less often seen disorders that PCPs are actually supposed to manage. But if PCPs don't feel as if they've been adequately trained and if they haven't received enough past experience in working up unusual or difficult conditions, most will simply refer the patient to a specialist. Thus, the PCPs lose even more experience in workup and management of unusual conditions, which further necessitates that patients be referred away. The human nature influences why a lot of doctors refer their patients to a specialist. It's taking the easy way out, right? If it's a lot easier and a lot faster to send Mr. Smith with a slightly unusual neurological complaint to a neurologist, who will order the MRI, the EEG, and do the detailed neurologic exam himself, then why not just do it? Rather than having to gather test results, perhaps look through some medical books and render a diagnosis and then treatment, it all gets done with a lot less headache and bother if the patient is simply referred to a specialist from the get-go. But once the PCP gets onto that slippery slope and starts referring everybody off to a specialist or subspecialist, he or she soon finds that all they feel comfortable with managing are patients' medicine refills. Sooner or later, they don't even feel comfortable or knowledgeable enough to coordinate their patient's overall care. And sooner or later, it becomes their standard to not coordinate anything. Of course, insurance companies deserve a significant portion of the blame as well, as they have imposed incredible, increasing amounts of control over who prescribes or who provides what type of service and where. There was a time when there were only a few insurance companies, in addition to the federal Medicare and the state Medicaid programs. Nearly every doctor and every hospital accepted whatever insurance plan a patient subscribed to, including Medicare and Medicaid. However, with nearly all doctors and hospitals accepting nearly all plans, anyone could go anywhere for care. That also meant that any private practice physician could be on staff at any hospital, manage his or her patients at any hospital, and coordinate care at any hospital. Primary care physicians were often on staff at several area hospitals and enjoyed the luxury of being able to consult any specialist or subspecialist. Outpatient lab tests, CT scans, ultrasounds, and anything else could be ordered as the PCP wished, whenever and wherever that PCP desired. Having so much autonomy inherently gave the PCP a lot of control over the patient's overall health care. 
PCPs used reliable laboratories and referred patients to surgeons and other specialists they trusted and with whom they had a great working relationship. A primary care physician's reputation, perhaps livelihood, was at stake if a poor referral choice was made. A patient who was referred to a specialist who didn't do a good job might show his dissatisfaction with his PCP by finding another doctor. Thus, the PCP made wise referrals, and those to whom the PCP referred communicated and collaborated with the referring doctor. The old system worked very well. Primary care physicians maintained control over their patients' overall care, and everyone had the right incentives inherently built into the system to make things work well for everyone. However, insurance companies started to change how they conducted business. They started forcing doctors to negotiate with them, to accept especially low preferred reimbursement rates, and begin to only allow patients to be seen by doctors with whom these special deals were negotiated. Of course, when patients signed up for their insurance plan, often a bargain, lower-cost health plan, they assumed that they could see any doctor, go to any hospital, and be referred to any specialist if needed. But that was not the deal created by the insurance companies. Insurance companies started by negotiating preferred provider contracts with primary care physicians. Patients who had been cared for by PCPs who chose to not participate in an insurance preferred provider program would no longer be allowed to care for their old patients. That is, unless the patient wanted to pay an egregiously high out-of-network fee, which often proved to be outrageous or unaffordable. So patients switched primary care doctors, as the insurance companies required, and now a new doctor, an unknown doctor, was in charge. And once the insurance companies owned all of the primary care providers, they started contracting with the specialists and the subspecialists. In time, a PCP could only refer to a specialist or subspecialist that was approved by the particular health insurance plan. Eventually, there were so many different health insurance plans and so many different contracts between specialists and insurance companies that the primary care physicians no longer had any control over where his patients were referred. The insurance company thus owned that patient. For example, a patient who had been seeing a particular primary care physician for years had developed, say, a degenerative joint disease of her shoulder. The PCP had managed that patient for years, but due to progressive pain and dysfunction, the patient asked to be referred to the most competent orthopedic shoulder specialist with the best reputation and known success rate. Well, the PCP knew exactly who he wanted to refer his patient to, but because his patient had recently changed insurance plans to a state-based exchange plan, that best, most reputable shoulder specialist was not an available option. So the PCP had to choose his referral from a list of orthopedic surgeons with whom this particular insurance company had cut deals with. And all of them were entirely unknown to the PCP and located a substantial distance away. But because this patient's insurance plan was in charge, the patient had to be referred to a specialist unknown to the primary care provider and would be required to have his surgery or her surgery at a hospital or an outpatient surgical center very far away. Thus, the primary care physician couldn't control or coordinate the care plan even if he wanted to. And once the insurance companies gained control over the PCPs, the specialists, and the hospitals, they then started negotiating with laboratories and freestanding radiology imaging centers. Patients now often have to travel to remote facilities to get their routine blood tests or to receive an outpatient ultrasound or CT scan. In years past, the PCP could easily stop by the x-ray department and discuss an x-ray reading with one of his radiologist colleagues. However, in the area of remote, independent, cut-rate imaging deals, 
Deals made by the insurance companies, PCPs and specialists often have no ability to have a face-to-face -face discussion with the radiologist who read the imaging studies to review what was seen. Whereas this may all seem trivial to you, it's not. For generations, most doctors all read the x-rays on their own patients. Radiologists, of course, always gave an official reading on everything, but most of us have read x-rays and CT scans for decades. And because humans are not perfect, us non-radiologists often picked up on something that a radiologist missed or might have a different opinion on than the radiologist. And if nothing else, a professional conversation is in order. That's what we all used to do. We did it all the time. It had essentially been a well-established, proven check and balance system that minimized reading errors. But with the insurance companies now contracting with these outside imaging centers, that check and balance I described no longer exists. And in fact, it seems to have dissuaded an entire generation of younger healthcare providers from even looking at x-rays or CT scans. Instead, many simply read the radiologist's report and assume that it's all correct. Thus, the insurance companies have in part contributed to the dumbing down of certain doctors, nurse practitioners, and physicians' assistants. In summary, insurance companies have made it very difficult, in some cases for a PCP or any other physician for that matter, to have any real control or effective coordination of a patient's overall care plan. And whereas it may seem troubling that a faceless, nameless entity called an insurance company is now in large part controlling your health care, it gets even worse. Bit by bit, nearly all hospitals and medical groups are being consumed by larger and larger healthcare systems. Systems which eventually get bought out by larger systems, who eventually will be bought out by even larger ones. And these massive healthcare system entities, often so large that they encompass several states, entire regions of the U.S., expertly contract with insurance companies, specialty groups, lab and imaging centers, rehabilitation facilities, nursing homes, ambulance companies, and just about every possible component of healthcare so as to impose tight controls on both patients and the doctors who treat them, all in order to cut costs, to lean down and trim unnecessary overhead expenses, and to save the system money. Note that I said save the system money. Yes, one of the goals is to cut an individual's healthcare costs, but the real goal is to get as many people covered and in the system as possible. And those who can pay more will pay more to subsidize those who can't or won't. But somewhere near the very top of the healthcare system food chain, there are always very wealthy healthcare executives who earn more money if they can get more people enrolled. In fact, because healthcare profit margins are actually very small, Volume is everything. Massive healthcare systems thrive on volume and volume alone. And thus, the more patients they enroll, the more money these executives will earn. So it behooves these executive leaders, people who don't typically even have a license to practice medicine, to control as much as possible and as tightly as possible in order to save the entity money and to make themselves money. Thus, more and more patients have their care coordinated and controlled, not by a doctor or even by a group of doctors, but from an entire nameless, faceless healthcare system which decides who gets cared for, by whom, where, and in some cases even decides the details of one's overall treatment plan. So if your doctor isn't really controlling or coordinating your overall healthcare plan these days, then how do you know who you can trust? How do you know that a primary care physician, who you assume would be looking out for your best interest, yet refers you to a specialist, another facility for a CT scan or an MRI or schedules you for a procedure at an outpatient surgical center has made a trustworthy decision or referral. 
How do you know that if you are hospitalized, the hospitalist assigned to you consults a specialist to do some sort of invasive procedure? How do you know that these person he's referring you to has an acceptable safety and success record and will not cause you harm? How do you know that if a loved one of yours is in the intensive care unit being tended to by some intensivist that this particular specialist assigned by the local hospital system to provide life-sustaining support needed to keep your loved one going is the best, most appropriate one around? Well, unfortunately, you do not know. You really don't have any guarantees that anyone who the system assigns or delegates to care for you is among the good the bad or the ugly. And that's because the primary care physicians really have very little, if any, control these days over much of anything. It's the healthcare system these days and the insurance companies who have contracted with them and the healthcare administrators who have the lion's share of the control over the care you receive. Sometimes you might get lucky and get assigned the best physician or specialist in the state, but you have equal probability of being assigned the polar opposite. And that's because a hospital system hires warm bodies. That is, when a system needs, say, a cardiologist, they cast a wide net and pull in whatever gets caught. As long as the doctor has the right credentials and doesn't have too many strikes against him or her, that cardiologist will usually get hired. In a minute, I'll talk about how hospitals and healthcare systems try to maintain an acceptable level of quality, specifically what happens if a particular doctor is found to have a lot of complications, doesn't address urgent patient crises, or simply fails to work at an acceptable level. But first, let me address what I feel is one of the reasons why patients should be skeptical when a specialist tells you he thinks you need a procedure or an operation. It's called the RVU-based compensation model. What? Well, I said it's called the RVU-based compensation model. This is how most healthcare institutions and medical groups pay their physicians. So what does RVU even stand for? It stands for Relative Value Unit. A Relative Value Unit is the number of productivity units the government assigns to every type of work a physician or healthcare provider could possibly generate. The higher the RVUs, the more valuable the particular amount of physician work according to the government. More RVUs equals more value, and more RVUs ultimately translates into more money for the physician. For example, the government sees relative value in a physician who visits with a patient for a particular length of time. So that visit for that particular number of minutes is assigned a relative value unit. Yet there are different RVUs for specialists who spend time in consultation discussing the very same problem. There are different RVUs for everything. There's an RVU for colonoscopy, yet there's a different RVU for a colonoscopy with biopsy. There is an RVU for appendectomy, yet there is a much better, higher RVU for abdominal exploratory surgery. Thus, physicians are rewarded by doing more work and are rewarded more for invasive procedures than simply history and physical exams. And the more complicated the procedure, the higher the RVUs. And once again, those RVUs eventually get translated into dollars, and so the more RVUs generated, the more dollars that physician earns. But the RVU-based compensation model is biased. It disincentivizes physicians from spending time talking with patients rather than doing some sort of procedure. For example, if a patient is referred to a gastroenterologist for mild intermittent belly discomfort, that gastroenterologist will earn 0.97 relative value units for talking with the patient, for examining the patient, and for discussing his thoughts with the patient. However, that same gastroenterologist will earn 3.26 relative value units if instead of spending time consulting with that patient, that instead he performs a colonoscopy. And it only makes sense. 
if when doing that colonoscopy that the gastroenterologist biopsies something because taking those two extra minutes to remove a tiny minute piece of something and sending it off to the pathologist, it just earned that gastroenterologist another 0.3 RVUs, which is about one-third of the RVUs of the entire consultation. I've often been told the old adage, when you are a hammer, you see the entire world as a nail. Translated, that means if you are a proceduralist, you try to find ways to do a procedure on everyone. The RVU system indirectly encourages it, and those who wish to earn more money will definitely find ways to do more procedures. If you see a cardiologist for chest pain, you will likely get a cardiac cath. If you see a gastroenterologist, you will likely get scoped. So you can't trust that whatever procedure you're told that you need is truly needed because the system encourages procedures. And since every hospital or institution in which a procedure is performed earns a facility fee from the insurance company or the third-party payer, procedures are highly desirable and highly encouraged. But surely, you ask, there must be some sort of quality control system in place which keeps physicians honest, which makes sure that the bad ones get reprimanded and kicked off staff if necessary, right? Well, sort of. Whereas hospitals and physicians used to do a great job of policing themselves by way of the M&M process, that is, the morbidity and mortality review process, assurance of high quality is now only as good as the individual hospital's quality control, peer review process, and the chief medical officer who oversees a hospital's quality. The old morbidity and mortality conferences were downright brutal. If a physician had a bad outcome, made a mistake, or if there was some sort of error in judgment, the responsible physician had to present what happened to a committee of his or her peers and receive often the harshest criticism and rebuke of fellow physicians and surgeon colleagues. This was not in any way intended to console the physician for the error or for the bad outcome, but rather was intended to punish the offender and to do everything possible to make sure that that similar physician never created a similar error or malocurrence ever again. Everyone who attended the M&M conferences got something out of them, and everyone learned a lot of what not to do. As a result, everyone wanted a good outcome, and nobody ever wanted to have to sit in that hot seat and be criticized. But the old school M&M conferences are a thing of the past. Nobody's skin is thick enough these days to be able to handle the brutal criticism of the old M&M committees. Instead, bad outcomes are quietly reviewed by a group of kinder, gentler peers who often find no problem at all, no variation in the care, and no opportunity for improvement. These so-called sham peer reviews have been the subject of great disdain among members of the surgical community who feel that modern day peer review is a joke where those who commit repeated wrongdoings or provide shoddy work never even get reprimanded. Almost every hospital or healthcare system does have a senior medical officer, often called the chief medical officer or CMO, who is ultimately responsible for the quality of the physicians and surgeons in that institution. But chief medical officers are often older physicians who may be thinking about retirement and who simply don't wish to make waves among former peers and colleagues with whom they practiced for many, many years. So a chief medical officer who is weak and ineffective, if so, often translates to a weak peer review, and thus there is nothing to improve marginal overall care or to eliminate bad physicians. So what can Joe Citizen do about this? Is there anything that an individual consumer of healthcare can do to obtain or regain some sort of control? And is there anything a non-medical member of a community can do to help assure that healthcare is a quality and trustworthy commodity? Whereas the changing system 
has still not yet reached a steady state, and as a result, there are no guarantees that coordination, control, or quality can ever be regained, certainly not to the level of a few decades past. There are a few things one can do. For starters, know the details of the healthcare plan you're purchasing. Too many people have no idea what they're choosing other than knowing their monthly costs. To use the car analogy, if you need to buy a used Ford Pinto because it's all you can afford, then by all means buy that used Ford Pinto because some kind of car is usually better than no car at all. If you can afford a better, safer car, then buy that better, safer car. Always remember that you get what you pay for. If you pay for bare bones healthcare, don't expect to receive anything other than bare bones healthcare. Don't buy the cheapest product just to save yourself a few bucks without reading the fine print first. You may very well not even realize that by choosing the cheapest plan that you're opting out of a lot of options and benefits in order to save some money. Next, check out the doctors and the institutions available to you within your healthcare plan. Do your homework. If you want the best doctor on the list that your insurance plan offers, then seek that person out. If you have options to use more than one hospital or clinic, find out which is best before you commit to one or the other. And when it comes to specialists, if you want to know who's best, ask a nurse. Find a salty older nurse who has been around the block a few times and ask for advice. Next, understand that the RVU system rewards doctors for doing procedures. If you're told that you need a test, a procedure, or a surgery, gently and respectfully ask your doctor or provider to explain to you why that's what you need. Ask if the benefits outweigh any and all risks. And if you are not satisfied with the answer, you have every right to leave that office, perhaps under the auspices of needing to think about things for a few days. Or you can request a second opinion from another physician. You are allowed to do either one of those things and you shouldn't feel at all guilty for looking out for your own best interest. And finally, when it comes to knowing whether your area hospital has good ratings and quality outcomes, there are a number of agencies out there that rate hospitals on a variety of performance measures. Whereas the absolute score may not necessarily be the most important, Comparing the hospital's more recent scores with past scores and with the scores of other area hospitals will give you some sort of idea as to which hospitals you can likely trust and which ones you may wish to avoid. As I said from the very beginning of this talk, I'm not entirely sure anymore who's actually in charge of anyone's overall healthcare plan, who coordinates what, and who, if anyone, can be trusted these days to provide the high-quality care we all expect. A lot of change has taken so much of the control and coordination over healthcare away from any one person and instead has given healthcare entities increasing authority. Whereas one can feel confused, frightened, and in some cases abandoned as a result of these changes, individuals still have options. The more you know about your individual health insurance plan, the more you know about your doctors and the specialists available to you, and the more you know about your area hospital options, the better the chances are that you'll receive the kind of care you expect. At this point, I feel that I've completely exhausted this particular subject and I have nothing left to add. So with that, I will conclude my time with you today and I hope that you all enjoyed my talk. Hopefully, you'll choose to look for me again soon and listen to my next subject on healthcare in America, the good, the bad, and the ugly. I'm Dr. James Cole. And I thank you for listening. This podcast and the rest of the podcasts in this series reflect my opinions and do not necessarily represent the positions of any other institution or entity. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Special thanks to Marie Hathaway for the artwork and for producing this podcast. And I hope that you enjoyed the guitar music because that is me playing and taking my own creative liberties. And we hope that you will again join us for our next episode of Healthcare in America, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly.